Welcome to the Southern Thoughts on a Northern Biennale podcast series, where we present the ponderings on how the European and North American art world works and provide recommendations on how to make it better. These observations come from artists and art practitioners who live in the Southern Hemisphere, namely Brazil and a number of different African countries. The three episodes aim to provide insights into the structure of the Venice Biennale from the perspective of Southern, African and Afro-diasporic artists and curators who contributed to its 2022 59th edition that ran in Venice during April to November 2022, titled The Milk of Dreams, curated by the Italian New York-based curator Cecilia Alemani, the first Italian woman to hold this position. The global art market's growing fascination with African art prompts us to reflect on African aesthetics and the role of curators, the art market, and international art events in shaping these aesthetics. We question the practices of the art market associated with cultural production, the value of visibility and circulation, and how they define black identity and aesthetics. By exploring the culture and subjectivity of the individuals involved, we uncover the need to address power imbalances in this type of production. In the 1990s, the rise of new technologies and economies appeared to create greater cultural exchange and a shrinking world. However, this external face of globalization fostered a corporate internationalism ideology that appropriated and diluted the discourse of multiculturalism. While cultural differences were recognized as a sign of a progressive disposition, they could result in a muted representation of black artists, as described by the British art historian and writer Gobina Mercer, and as often remarked by the editor and founder of Nka, Journal of Contemporary African Art, Salah Hassan, in his insights on Afro-cosmopolitanism and the diaspora. Yet, still in 2016, Bongani Mahlangu, a South African curator, highlighted that the narrative surrounding valuable and important black African art is shaped by white or Western ideology. Based on these observations, the podcast proposes a critical examination of the latest resurgence of interest in the African continent and African artistic production by the art market. This is exemplified by the 2022 59th edition of the Venice Biennale, which featured the highest number of female, Afro and Afro-descendant artists in its history. We want to emphasize that despite the increased presence of contemporary African art in critical discussions and influential art circuits, the Eurocentric practices of contemporary art and the cultural industry continue to perpetuate Western biases. US-based art historian professor Sylvester Okonudu Ogbechi reminds us that while globalization may seem to challenge the old notions of center and periphery, it actually reinforces these divisions. The periphery is incorporated into the hegemonic narratives of the center only if art adheres to Western standards. Similar concerns were raised by Brazilian artist Diego Arruja at the Ghana Pavilion in 2022. 
This interest in Europe by the peripheries of capitalism and especially the periphery that is currently in place, the periphery that is having its voice heard at that time. Sometimes it interests me and sometimes purely in the market. This interest on the periphery by Europe, precisely the periphery that is being heard now, sounds to me like quite a naive interest. To understand the Venice Biennale, it is crucial to interpret it through the lens of transnational capitalism on two levels, who holds the resources and the power that these determine, including in terms of representation. This brings us back to the work of Okwi Enuezo at the 56th Venice Biennale in 2015, titled All the World's Futures, and to some of the questions raised in the curatorial roundtable regarding contemporary African art practice and the curatorial politics of its representation, organized by Chika Okeke Agulu at the beginning of 2000. While Enezo aimed to shed light on the negative conditions and overwhelming precarity brought about by our late capitalist society, the roundtable instead raised questions concerning the meaning of mega-exhibitions and the role of practitioners in the field of contemporary African art on affirming African art into the global panorama. After a decade, it can be useful to extend Enuezo's notion of precarity to the power dynamics within cultural production and the art market itself. Moreover, it is an invitation to consider, from a Southern perspective, what practitioners in the field of contemporary art can do to enhance the experiences of Southern artists participating in the future editions of the Biennale. The Venice Biennale, which started in 1895, initially took place in the exhibition hall in the Giardini, a garden area. As the exhibition grew, foreign countries were invited to construct their own pavilions in the garden. The first pavilion was built by Belgium in 1907, followed by Hungary, Germany and Britain in 1909. France, Sweden and the Netherlands joined in 1912 and Russia in 1914. In 1980, the Biennale expanded to include the Arsenale, a historic shipyard which now houses the new Italian pavilion. So, the main venues for the Biennale are the Giardini, covering around 10,000 square meters, and the Arsenale, covering approximately 11,430 square meters. Additionally, there are external pavilions and parallel events. So the first data we come across is that Venice Biennale is an art mega event. It is important to note that the inauguration of the Venice Biennale coincided with the height of the colonial period. Only 10 years separate its opening in 1895 from the Berlin Conference of 1885. The layout of the Giardini reflects the political context of its time. Britain is positioned on a hill, with France and Germany on its sides, while Italy, the host country, is located at the end of the avenue, along with Spain and Belgium. The garden later added pavilions for Austria, Egypt and Brazil. In 1952, Egypt established the first permanent African pavilion in the Giardini, which remains the only one to this day. 
The Arsenale houses pavilions for non-European countries that have gained prominence, such as China, India, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, thanks to their ability to afford the high rents in the recently developed section. It is also home to two African pavilions, South Africa, which has a permanent location and holds a similar status to Egypt in the African presence within the Venetian hierarchy, and Ghana. South Africa first participated in the Venice Biennale in 1950, but its involvement was disrupted due to anti-apartheid protests in the following decades. In the 1960s and 70s, African countries were primarily focused on gaining independence, so it's not surprising that they had limited participation in international art events until the 1980s. The landmark exhibition, Magiciennes de la Terre, in 1989 at the Centre Pompidou in Paris played a significant role in opening up the international art scene to African artists. Additionally, former colonies started organising their own art events as a response to Western European cultural dominance. Brazil was the first non-Western country to establish its own Biennale in 1951 followed by India in 1969 and Cuba in 1984. Although Africa initially lacked national pavilions in the Venice Biennale, collateral projects helped compensate for this. One notable example is the Forum for African Arts, established by African academics and curators in 1999, which led to dedicated exhibitions showcasing contemporary African art, such as Authentic Eccentric, Africa in and out of Africa, curated by Salah Hassan and the Nigerian-born American artist and academic Olu Ogwibe during the 49th Venice Biennale in 2001, and Fault Lines, Contemporary African Art and Shifting Landscapes, curated by Gilene Tiwadros for the 50th edition of the Biennale in 2003. In 2007, the then-curator Robert Storr's idea of creating an African pavilion for the Biennale sparked controversy. Firstly, with regard to the absurdity of one single pavilion representing an entire continent. Second, for reproducing the artificial boundaries between Northern and Sub-Saharan Africa as the result of the direct link of the pavilion to the private art collection of the late Angolan art collector Sindika Dokolo. As remarked by Nigerian critic and art historian Chika Okeke Agulu, the pavilion not only didn't have a theme, but also didn't have a commissioner for praxis. Instead, the selection was made by a jury of which only two had significant African art-related curatorial projects or scholarships. However, Checklist Luanda, curated by Simon Njami and Fernando Alvim, was chosen to represent the continent as the African pavilion. According to Okeke Agulu, the selection was based not so much on the idea presented by the curators as on the need to take a position on art collecting in Africa. The year 2015 marked a turning point when Nigerian curator Okui Enezo curated the 56th Venice Biennale titled All the World's Futures. 
Enezo's involvement was significant as he became the first and to date the only African curator of the event. Another initiative focused on contemporary African art is the African Art in Venice Forum, established in 2017. Produced by the non-profit organization African Art Dialogues, registered in Italy, the forum aims to bring together diverse voices from the contemporary African art ecosystem during the opening week of the Venice Biennale. For the 2022-59th Venice Biennale, Cecilia Alemani selected 12 African artists out of a total of 213 artists for the main exhibition. She also appointed three advisors from Africa, Nontobekon Tombela from South Africa, Kwasio Hene Aye from Ghana, and Marie Helini Pereira from Senegal. These advisors helped with research and artist recommendations. The exhibition showcased artworks from 81 countries and introduced five new national pavilions, including three from African countries, Cameroon, Namibia, and Uganda. In total, there were nine African pavilions, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Cameroon, Egypt, Cote d'Ivoire, South Africa, Ghana, Namibia, and Kenya. Egypt's pavilion was located in the Giardini area, while South Africa and Ghana were in the Arsenale, and the remaining six pavilions were situated externally. It's important to note that the number of African countries participating in this 59th edition is the same as the historical 56th Venice Biennale of 2015. However, in the larger context, if all the world's countries were to participate, there would only be around 195 participating nations. This means that less than half of the world's countries regularly take part in the Biennale. The structure of national pavilions has faced criticism for reinforcing the idea of the nation-state as the default unit for framing artistic practice. Despite these criticisms, the Biennale has shown reluctance to question or change the structure as confirmed by the increase in the number of national pavilions from 77 in 2009 to 89 in 2011. Additionally, the Sami Pavilion, which replaced the Nordic Countries Pavilion, became in the 2022 edition the first indigenous representation in the history of the Biennale. However, it faced difficulties and resistance in being accepted by the Biennale organizers, as reported by the co-curator Katja Garcia Anton. Time with the Biennial, for example. They did not allow us to actually formally call the Nordic Pavilion the Sami Pavilion. They refused. We had like a year-long discussion with them again and again. We said, but you know, look at what's happening in the world. I mean, you, you cannot refuse. And this is almost like this is not, this is our pavilion. This is not your pavilion. It's not our pavilion. Yeah. And the ministries all agree. So if the ministries all agree, what power do you have to disagree? So that was a big battle, and in the end they didn't agree, and so we had to put like speech marks around the Sami Pavilion so it would become more like a title. 
they sort of lost that battle anyway because we, when we first launched the Sunny Pavilion in the press, we launched it the way we wanted to launch it. We didn't expect them to not allow us to do that. And then the communications department wrote to us really angry and uh, said, you're not allowed to do this. But we had already done it. The pre-production of participation in the Biennale is already a complex initial process made even more complex in the 2022 edition by the pandemic, which in addition to delaying the event by a year, has also transferred part of the pre-production online, according to the South African artist Roger Ballen. The problem with production there is, there's, I think, a couple issues in terms of being involved in BNL. Firstly, the spaces are very old in some cases and require uh, dialogue to make sure that uh, one fits into the rules of the, of the BNL, which is absolutely fine. The second thing is basically working with uh, photographs and, and diagrams and of a particular space. And, you know, there's nothing like actually visiting a space to try to fit what you're doing into that space. But in the case of myself, I wasn't able to visit the, the space um, before I left. And so I went there, um, you know, hoping it was fit into what I was trying to do. And I was very, very, very fortunate um, that the space that I was allocated fit into my my ultimate aesthetic. And then one has to plan, um, you know, various aspects of the exhibition, the walls, the lighting, mm-hmm. the sound with, with a third party. Um, this is always uh, tricky in some sense that, that, you know, the communication is works and the costing works and and uh, the timing works. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, uh, working vanishes isn't easy because for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, everybody's doing the same thing. So the cost of labor and the cost of materials goes up because everybody's trying to do the same thing, usually at the same time. And the second thing is, you know, everything has to be imported from the mainland. And so you have all these problems of transporting everything around on boats, which so fortunately I didn't have to deal with. But, you know, I can appreciate how difficult this is. Similar difficulties are experienced by Solange Pessoa. Brazilian artist and part of the main show at the Arsenale. I left Brazil with my project very clear in my mind. I spent a lot of time studying the space using Google Earth. It was a great way to study the space from above. I had already marked the floor to place the artworks that arrived by ship in wooden boxes. They removed them one by one. And it was a very slow process because it depended on the production's men. Because you don't do anything alone, you can't do anything alone. Considering both of them are experienced artists makes clear the importance of being able to rely on a good curatorial team before leaving but also having a local referent in Venice. It highlights the difference between someone who is in Venice for the first time and someone who has been there even just to visit before. As beautiful as Venice is, it can become a hell in logistical terms and the artists and curators end up being overwhelmed by these difficulties. According to Nacheng Kuarendorf, artist from the Ghana Pavilion. It was extremely intense. I don't think I had any particular... Patient, oh, there was nothing I particularly expected because, you know, it's 
you don't really know what's going to happen or I didn't know what's going to happen. My concern was, you know, making sure that the work was ready and it was installed and it looked the way I needed it to look for the reception of like the people who were going to come in. And so everything else that came after was sort of like an afterthought. So maybe I was slightly unprepared for how intense it was going to be. It really just required me to sort of be there and explain my work to an extent to the audience. And that was hours and hours on end, having conversations with people who were interested in finding out more about the work. According to the editor of the London-based contemporary arts magazine, Frise, Jennifer Higgy, visiting the Venice Biennale can be quite challenging. It requires determination, mobility, good navigation skills, and an open-minded attitude. Due to the complexity of navigating the city, the places that receive the most visitors are often the ones with strong self-promotion strategies. The level of promotion is usually related to the budget and team available to the curator. With intense competition, quieter, more nuanced or underfunded pavilions often go unnoticed. Artists with high profiles supported by influential commercial galleries, backed by strong PR campaigns and hosting impressive opening night parties, tend to attract the most visitors. These opening night parties hold significant importance and require personal preparation and the ability to navigate social situations effectively. As remarked by Ghanaian artist Nachengua Reindorf, The people who I have known about but became accessible because they were just like a step away and I could just walk up to them and, and you know, speak to them, which was, and in a sense that it was a concentration of that. And so that was great in that sense. But in terms of Personally, I was extremely exhausted <laughs> uh, because there was just like so much happening and because it's like such a large event and almost like people from all over the world and it's just so many like other areas and other places to visit and stuff. It was almost like having to make executive decisions as to where to be at what time because mm-hmm. there was just so much happening at the same time everywhere. And so my instinct was to stay close to my work and to, so that I could be able to talk about it to people who were interested in it. And I'm pretty sure I missed out on a lot of other things because I was where I was instead of being somewhere and being other places. But that's sort of how my experience was. And, you know, people are really, to some extent, are, are there to socialize but also to have fun. Like, this is like a, a way for them to enjoy something and then for a weekend and then be type of thing so I think the the only party that I went to was the Ghana the party the Ghana party and um, even then I was a zombie <laughs> uh, because there's just a lot happening it's one of those situations where you just sort of decide you know everybody's a bit more social a bit more accessible in a way but they also don't want to be you know bogged down with having to have just serious discussions about stuff or whatever so I honestly when I went I went to the party I was just ready to just have a good time because it had just been quite quite been quite a stressful experience from the beginning just like getting everything done and getting everything ready and then having to talk about the work and you know just interacting with people to like for extended periods of time so it was just sort of like a 
so for me, I don't think I did much socializing. My family was there and I hadn't seen them in a while. So I think I, I spent quite a lot of time hanging out with my family. Then I found out, you know, post afterwards that there were all these like important people who are the party having fun. And I didn't, I personally did not know who they were at the time. So I wasn't able to sort of make that connection. I did meet a few, like John Akonfra, who is like a British Ghanaian uh, filmmaker who I really admire. And I was able to meet him quite briefly. But then apart from that, I think it was, I was looking at it as this is a, the context is a party. So just like have, try and have fun <laughs> rather than, you know, try and make connections. This is, I guess, where my point about not really having expectations or or having some sort of a other ulterior motive came in for me. So I maybe didn't, was not as aggressive as one could be. A similar feeling is shared by Diego Arujo. It's very different from these BNL situations where they catch me there, generally working, and they tell me, you need to talk to the French curator, and what do you want me to say? There was a situation at dinner where a friend of mine, curator, came to me and said, Diego, you must know this curator here. But I looked at him and said, what do you want me to say? Because there's no kind of introduction, and you don't really know what to say, and it feels like you're pitching yourself. I became a merchant, a salesman, when in fact I don't think this is the artist's role. Of course, there are certain situations where you have to present yourself as a seller of your work. For example, in an interview or in a situation where they ask you to talk about your work. But in these situations, out of the blue, they put a curator in front of you. I even find it a little invasive and a bit subjugating, as if someone had power over you. I come from Salvador, Latin America, on the outskirts of capitalism. I'm a black man and they start talking to me. This is the curator you should know because he has already curated Documenta, the Venice Biennale. And what must I say? It seems like an emanation of the exercise of power. I've been through situations where I've spoken to the curator and said, I'm sorry, but I have nothing to say to you. They put me in this position, but we can talk another time. I can give you my contact details. Because I didn't have anything to say at the moment. My head wasn't there to speak. I find these situations a bit embarrassing. Afroscope, artist of the Ghana's pavilion, says... When we got there... Um, we were working like pretty hard the whole time. Like at this point, I was there actually working, carrying stuff. Either, you know, and you still have to smile for the cameras and talk to people who are showing up for the work. You know, almost pretend like you know nothing. Um, there was not all this craziness in in the background. Fadzai Muchemwa, the curator of the Zimbabwean Pavilion, said. I didn't go to any parties. You needed access. It shouldn't be that exclusive. It should be open to everyone. So you you get an access pass to view the exhibitions and some events, but for some parties you did need to be invited. The Zimbabwean Pavilion decided to transform their pavilion into the African hub, taking advantage of its established strategic location between the Arsenale and the Giardini, Together with the artist and DJ Robert Machiri, they organized the Pungwe Night, which created a unique space without any hierarchies or privileges. By transforming the exhibition room 
into a space for gathering, fun, sharing, and a sense of home breaking away from the white cube orthodoxy format as described by the art historian Lefang Zhang. During the opening week, it's a race to attend one show after another and everything becomes a blur of exhaustion, excitement and cultural mix-up. The enormity of the event can make it difficult to navigate, causing confusion and getting lost while trying to meet someone in the middle of the city. Venice during the Biennale is described as total chaos. GPS does not work well and following directions from locals can be challenging. The experience of La Biennale is closely intertwined with the experience of the city itself. Robel Temesgen, Ethiopian artist who took part of the Africa Forum, said, Venice by that time is, is a total chaos when it comes to being at a place. You really um, have to plan on it. You have to really want to be there. The South African artist Pumlani Ntuli describes Venice as, Socially, it's quite an interesting space in how it's kind of situated, you know, within the context of the river. One feels quite immersed in in the environment itself, in terms of like walking through the streets and, uh, you know, going to restaurants and taking the boats. So there's kind of quite some interesting amenities that come with Venice and specifically with the Biennale. But it feels that one should also be there for a short space of time. I couldn't really imagine being there for like a month, for example. While Afroscope from Ghana describes his experience at the Biennale as... The more I read about Venice and the more I learned, I realized recognizing um, that it's not just like any other, um, you know, show and in any gallery space, but this is just uh, another life happening. So that's how that's how I was, that's how I went through there, even though I'd never shown work on such a scale. Venice is known for its association with worldliness, which is often linked to art and fashion, as well as ostentatious displays of wealth. The Venice Biennale and the Basel Art Fair are seen as tools that reflect and maintain status hierarchies. As the Creed of Merchants says... See it in Venice, buy it in Basel. Art Basel opens only a week after Venice. VIP treatment, exclusive access to events, extravagant parties on expensive yachts and visits to collectors' villas are all signs of status among the cultural elite, as reminded by the sociologist of art, Olaf Valtes. The line of superyachts, that provides the background of tired attendees floating between the Giardini and the Arsenale, going from one opening to another, the mix with millions of tourists who roam unsystematically and unregulated in a postmodern path between culture and consumption, as described by the curator of the 2022 Uganda Pavilion, Shaheen Mirali. The Venice Biennale embodies a superficial sense of worldliness that has been present for many years. It represents an outdated view of art as objects displayed in museums and galleries, later stored in the vaults of prestigious banks, where their value is determined by social connections. Solange Pessua comments, I think this pavilion's model is totally exhausted, 
Something else should appear. Rich countries and poor countries have always existed, and you see a very strong geopolitics within these major global events. You see a lot of money, these rich people, the curators too, these big, large-scale curators. There's all this economic and political difference. It's a reality. As Shaheen Mirali, curator of the Uganda Pavilion, said, When I attend a Biennale, I want to seek a place where there's forms of expansion and growth to overcome how I've arrived there unsatisfied with what I have when I face the status quo. But yet again, I face the old wealth in Venice, as I face the old wealth in Basel. I face the status quo which has existed, presented by the old wealth. And in that sense, the Giardini, like Basel, like the art fairs, presents the scattering of collateral from the West in its national pavilions, while it leaves the rest of the world aside. The Venice Biennale provides us with insights into the ongoing coloniality and gender biases that exist in the art world. It reflects the national representation established during the era of colonial imperialism and highlights the exceptional position of women in the institution's history. As Solange Pessoa noticed, only today, after so long, we now see an Italian female curator. There have been others, but it's all very recent. But an Italian, only now. And this is because she lives in New York and has a more cosmopolitan life. Italy is very conservative, very Catholic. In 2022, Cecilia Alemani's Biennale, two notable aspects were observed. Firstly, there was a significant presence of women artists, which is an important step towards addressing gender inequality. Secondly, there was an increased representation of artists from Asia and Africa, showcasing a broader and more diverse range of artistic perspectives. For the first 100 years of this prestigious institution, the percentage of women artists in the show was less than 10%, and in the last 20 years, it was around 30%, Alemani said. The awards replicate this inequality. For the first time in the history of the Biennale, both of the Venice Biennale's top honours, the Golden Lions, went to black women, Simone Lee and Sonia Boyce. Different is the thought of Nachangua Rendorf, who says, I think it's, there's always been a disconnect between maybe like the experience on the ground and what is written about in the newspapers. Not to say that the media was wrong or anything, but of course, my singular experience is not like the representative of everybody else's at the Biennale. Um, so, of course, from my own perspective, I was the minority <laughs> being represented, right? The same thought was shared by the curator of the Zimbabwean pavilion, Fazai Veronica Muchemwa. It might have been the influence of the the main exhibition because it did have an impressive uh, presence of female artists um, and the the curator was was female uh, but when you look at each pavilion on its own you find for example the Zimbabwe pavilion the curator me was 
female, yes. But there were three male artists and one female artist. And then it, it goes on and on and on. Uh, the, um, the curator for the South African Pavilion was female, also one female artist and two male artists. So it was impressive, the presence of female artists and curators. I still feel that... Um, considering that there are more females than male, maybe more needs to be done. If we're going to talk about equality in terms of representation, uh, then it's not like token representation, like, oh, we just need uh, 50% of females and 50% of males, but really making an effort of uh, making sure that representation is equal. While according to Amy Bell, curator of the South African Pavilion. As the art world has historically been dominated by males, the focus on women on such an important global platform may contribute to the process of transformation where the understanding of what and who we value within the art world has the potential to expand. On regards to the greater representation of artists from Asia and Africa, It is evident by the numeric data reported at the beginning of this podcast that African countries find a very limited portion of representation and Egypt continues to be the only African country having a permanent national pavilion and South Africa having a permanent spot at Arsenale. As Roger Ballin observes, If they want to um, make it really an open-ended a festival, then they need to allocate the funds and, and organization to most of the countries in the world who don't have any money and shift um, the emphasis in a, a real basis to, to these places. You know, again, if you go to Gardini, um, where's Africa? Where's where's any of these places? They're not there. So then if they really wanted to do, do something in a real way, they would take everybody who's in Gardini and say, sorry, for this year uh, or for the next 10 years, you're moving to Arsenal and and we're going to allocate on a fair basis countries that don't have money uh, to your pavilions, and that would be the way to do this. That's real. It's, everything is about words and talk, but in the end of the day, what's real? The Venice Biennale has in such way never reflected the full diversity and strength of the continent's cultural production. As the Botswana Pavilion Collective affirms, The Venice Biennale is only one of the many platforms that have made African art and artists more prominent. However, they believe that the credit for this visibility is split between artists, clever use of social media, collaborations with mainstream creatives through music, fashion, etc., as well as the global uprising of Africanness or interest in Africanness in quotation marks, blackness and all of its related identity politics. Um, I think it's difficult to say or begin to surmise who or what may deserve the credit for this particular circumstance, and perhaps it's patronizing to consider their prominence in this way. As stated by Hazel Friedman, Biennales, more as institutions than events, constitute a microcosm of power relations in the real world. In the next episode, we will observe how this microcosm of power operates through a series of structural inequality in terms of access to resources and through outright unethical behaviors by European actors.